Well, good morning. And as we, um, before we get into the word, I just want you to do something with me. In Nehemiah, there's a point where we read, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And so in our homes this morning, uh, I want us to just engage with joy. You know, we can access joy whenever we want. And sometimes we may not feel like it. Um, and I shared some things in, um, in October in the morning thought. We did a uh, weekly thought in the mornings about joy. And one of the things is you basically fake it till you make it. So I'm just going to start laughing, and I want you at home to just laugh along with me and allow the joy of the Lord to well up within you. So here we go. <laughs> okay. Now, when you hear someone laugh, it releases a, a, a kind of memory of joy or a memory of time that you have laughed along with something else, and it just it causes this sort of joy to rise in you. So maybe when you hear me laugh, that might happen for you. As we do that, I'm going to be praying the Holy Spirit releases joy in your homes. So here we go. <laughs> He is so good. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And this morning, as we come into this uh, value about people being precious, I want us just to have that sense of the joy of the Lord sort of as our foundation as we move into this further this morning. Let me pray and then we'll get into it. Father, thank you that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Thank you that even in the environment we find ourselves in, even though we might find it uh, difficult being at home, uh, being locked down, and uh, where, however long that's going to be for, you are our joy. We have the ability to access joy in any given moment because of who you are, because of what Jesus has done, because of what he has won, and because of the kingdom that he has released all around us. Thank you that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And may we in our homes experience your joy as we fix our hearts, our attention, and our gaze on you. May the joy of the Lord be our strength. Amen. Now, last week, James and Lou introduced our five core values to us. And they spoke about that revival starts with me. Today, we want to think about uh, the value that people are precious. People are precious. And this is about living out the value of revival starting with me. It's about uh, being in a situation so uh, if, if people are precious, what we are saying is that, you know, if we look at past revivals and we read about past revivals, we very often find that the, uh, towards the end of that move of God, or if, if we're calling it an end, there's a sort of a dwindling or a dimming of that move of God, usually that is brought on by the broken relationships of those involved in that ministry. Or, or it's because 
uh, those people have felt judged or themselves have judged others within the kingdom of God, and it's brought division and disunity, and the whole thing comes tumbling down. And it might not be a tumbling down, it might just be a gradual reduction. And so the understanding that people are precious is um, not just because it's clear in the scripture, as we'll find out in a moment, it's also um, because uh, in order to sustain a healthy move of God, we need to have a strong sense of unity, togetherness, of championing one another amongst us. And that's really important. You know, we're a highly apostolic church here at Chanctonbury. And what that means is that essentially we have a strong strong focus of the kingdom of God among us and how that impacts the culture, the prevailing culture around us. You know, the apostolic side of the kingdom of God is about bringing kingdom change in our environment. But the Lord's been speaking to me about the next move of God being about the apostolic and the pastoral coming together so that passionate revivalists are being invited to experience a a deeper, emotionally healthy response to the kingdom of God, which flows out in the way that we behave and in the way that we treat those around us. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's really exciting that we get to go on this journey. So what does it mean when we say, that people are precious. I want to start by reading out a scripture. If you've got your Bibles with you, if you want to turn to the book of Colossians. So the book of Colossians, uh, I think it's the sixth book of the, uh, the seventh book of the New Testament. Is that right? No, that's wrong, isn't it? Anyway, it's further than that. But it goes Romans, Corinthians uh, 1, Corinthians 2, Galatians, Ephesians, And what's after Ephesians? Is it Colossians? Uh, No, Philippians, Colossians. Anyway, I'm sure you can find it. Sorry, getting muddled up there. But Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. And I'm going to read that for us now. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, Meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness 
in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. That's the first passage. The second one, John 15 verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. People are precious. Now, uh, sometimes we have spoken about church being family, and I want to just unpack this value about people being precious starting there. So what do we mean when we say people are precious? What does it look like? And so, um, first of all, we want to say that this value means that we as a church are family-oriented. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the family unit of a, a, a father and a mother and children, or grandparents, or you know, however the family unit is made up. We're not talking about the nuclear family. We're talking about the family of the people of God. And I'm going to come back to Colossians and, uh, and John in a moment. But I want to take us somewhere else. Um, because firstly, if we're thinking about family and how we as the people of God fit into that, we just need to get a few things um, clear. The first is that we are adopted. Okay, we are adopted. Romans 8 verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, as we sung about earlier. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That word, uh, adopted, the Greek word there used for adopted, in the first century um, conveys the sense of inheritance, which went in the time to sons. And that's why it says adopted as sons. This isn't about men or, 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 uh, or sons per se. It's about the people of God, all of us, men and women, and that we are adopted in the sense that sons receive, uh, in the time of the day, sons would receive, the eldest son would receive the greatest inheritance. And that's what this is about. We are adopted to receive the greatest inheritance. And we are adopted as his children. He brings us into his family. So that's the first thing. We are his children. 1 John 3 verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children. And the language of family is very strong. We are his children, so you are my brothers and sisters. It's how the family of Jesus is set up. God is the Father. I say God. The Father, God the Father, or Yahweh we might call him, is the Father of it all. Jesus, of course, is the Son. And the Holy Spirit, we would never say the Holy Spirit was the Mother. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. But the Holy Spirit has attributes that are like that of a mother. And so you have this sense of family, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit living together. 
as one, and we are invited into that relationship as adopted children. We participate in the divine nature, Peter tells us, as children of God. And so we are a family with a perfect father. Now we have to separate this from our experience of earthly family. It might be that we've got a great experience. I, the word family is important, and for some of us that word may need redeeming because our experience of family might not have been what we hoped it could have been. But we are a family with a perfect father. You and I, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, are a family with a perfect father. And that's, um, within that, conveys the sense of a way in which we need to behave. We need to reflect him. And let's go back to John chapter 15, verse 12. Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, Jesus said that knowing full well that he was about to go to the cross. And he follows it up, as you probably well know, with greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. And of course, Jesus went on to do that. Love one another as I have loved you means that love is sacrificial. It's inconvenient. It means that we don't always get to do what we want. It means that we have to lay ourselves down on behalf of others, that we prefer one another in love, that we put the needs of each other above our own needs. You know, people are precious. The most famous uh, verse in the Bible, as you know, probably, is John 3, verse 16. There are other contenders, but I think this is probably the most famous. I think we would probably agree on that. You know what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now the word world there is cosmon. The Greek word, cosmon. It comes from the word cosmos. And that has a number of different uh, meanings or ways that can be translated into English. But here in John chapter 3, verse 16, the way it's translated is it means um, humanity in general. It means all of humanity being the object of God's love. People are precious because we are the object of God's love. You are the object of God's love. I am the object of God's love. And therefore, I need to treat you as the object of God's love. And you need to treat me as the object of God's love. Every time we see somebody else who's in front of us as anything other than the object of God's love... 
We are moving into a realm of judgment. We are moving into a realm where Satan has dominion and God doesn't. We are the object of his love. You, as my brothers and sisters, are the object of God's love. And so if I start to see you as something outside of that, I move outside the realm of the kingdom of God. Remember what James and Lou said last week. Revival starts with me. The onus is on me. Uh, received, uh, you know, receiving the full grace given to me from heaven, uh, from Jesus and what he has done, to then apply the truth of Scripture like a lens to my life so that my lifestyle and the, the decisions I make, the things that I think look like Jesus. And one of those things is that the people around me are the object of God's love. Now that's not just the people of God as we might term it. That's everybody in creation, the object of God's love. And therefore, they deserve to be treated as precious. So we are family-oriented. And this basically means that as brothers and sisters, we treat each other as the objects of God's love. We don't have the right to treat people in any other way. And so uh, it's challenging because you know what I've learned in life? People, precious as they are, people are annoying. <laughs> now, you know, it's probably not the right thing to say in some senses, but let's be real. We get wound up, don't we? We get cross or upset because somebody does something that we don't like or because it inconveniences us or because they see things in a different way to us. And so we start to put people through a filter. How much am I going to give of myself to this person in front of me? Because I don't like the way that they do this or the way that they say that or the, the way they behave in this environment or that environment. And we start to put people through a filter of whether they are worthy to receive our love and our kindness and our joy and our affection and all of those things. But if they are worthy to receive his which they are because of what Jesus has done, then who am I to decide any other thing? And who are you to decide any other thing? People are precious, and that means we're family-oriented, and we treat each other as God's beloved. We treat each other as objects of his love and affection. Let's push that further. So the first thing, family-oriented. Secondly, we are dignity-preserving. Now that's something, uh, let's look at uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 17, the first sentence. One of the shortest sentences in the Bible. Not the shortest, but one of them. 
two words. Not the shortest verse, the verse is longer. But the first part of the verse says this. Honour everyone. That's it. Honour everyone. Now your Bible translation might be slightly different. I'm using the English Standard Version. And there it just says that. Honour everyone. Once we become believers, because Jesus makes us his home, John 14, verse 23, he makes his dwelling among us. Because he makes us his home and comes to live inside of us, the trait of honor is switched on in our lives. And we do not have permission to turn it off. Honor everyone. No person should be excluded from the trait of honor in our lives. No person should be treated in any way that is less than honorable. I know this is challenging because, you know, it's not easy to live this. And that's the point. We go, Father, I need your help. Jesus, I can't do this without you. He's like, yeah, I know. That's why I died on the cross. And we receive from him his love. And we allow that to marinate within our spirit so that we can release that to the world. We honor everybody. Because people are precious, we honor them. Because people are the object of God's love, we honor them. When we see them through heaven's eyes, we see them as the true saints that they really are. And what does this mean? Dolly, my wife, um, is moving in the, working in the area of, of coaching um, and sort of consulting um, around teams and that kind of thing. And she's recently been uh, learning a lot more about something called psychological safety. Now, it's a phrase that's new to me, and I haven't explored it in the way that she has. But I love the phrase, psychological safety. And it's quite a big thing currently. Some of you will know about this. In... Um, you know, work teams and the work culture. How do we create a psychologically safe environment? And that means a place, as I understand it, where people feel free to be open and vulnerable so that they can truly say what they think because they're not scared that their line manager or the environment that they are in will crush them or silence them or, or tell them they've got it wrong, or something like that. Now, it's fine to say if something needs improvement or something is wrong, but we need to create the environment where we feel safe in order to do that well. And so, when we are talking about being a dignity-preserving environment or culture, we need to have a, an understanding that the psychological environment of our of the kind of culture that we are in is safe so that people can share freely and be open and honest with us. And in that environment, people are free to be real. And when they are open 
and honest with us, we treat them and what they have shared with dignity and with respect. So if somebody comes to me and shares something that they are struggling with, whatever it might be, it could be that they're struggling with something like internet pornography. It could be that they're struggling with same-sex attraction, uh, and that's you know, something they don't want in their life. Or it could be uh, you know, any area of life that they're struggling with. It might be, I just feel so selfish. It might be, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm struggling in this lockdown and I'm angry with my wife or my husband and I find myself nagging or uh, arguing or, or shouting or very irritable. It could be anything of that stuff. Or it could be I'm having an affair. It could be something like that. Or I've not been honest with my finances to the tax man. Or something like that. It could be anything of those things. And, it, you know, whatever it is, in, in a, in a dignity-preserving culture, in a psychologically safe culture, we hear that and we treat that individual and we treat what they have shared with dignity and respect and we protect it so that they feel safe. Because in that environment, if they feel safe, we are then in a position where we can start to work together to overcome, to bring the freedom that Jesus has won for us on that cross into that experience, into that problem. Now, in order for somebody to get free from a problem, they have to not only see that they have a problem. How many of you know you cannot help someone who doesn't think they have a problem? If they can't see there's a problem, you cannot help them. All right? And it's not necessarily, and I would often say it's not our job to point out their problem. Now, how do we go about that? I'm not going to talk about that now because that's not what this is for. But what I am saying is that we need to have the environment where somebody feels safe so they can come and say, I've got a problem here and I need help. And they will only do that, we will only do that if we feel psychologically safe. And that will happen if we have a dignity-preserving culture where our attitude towards every individual is one of honor at all times, no matter what they have shared, no matter what they have done. Of course, a uh, quick thing, if this crosses over safeguarding issues, then th the safeguarding protocols come into play. So obviously, um, I'm not in any way saying that we should be ignoring something like safeguarding. We always honor. So... People are precious. That means, one, we are family-oriented. Two, we are dignity-preserving. And three, that we have a culture that is best-assuming. Romans 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. 
Outdo one another in showing honor. There it is again, that thing of honor. So, let me say that again. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And then, uh, just a little bit further down, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. That means arrogant. But associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, some months ago, I spoke about judgment from the Sermon on the Mount and how it's so easy to be like a Pharisee. Um, And so if you want this to be unpacked much further, uh, go back. um, I can't remember the date, I'm afraid. But go back and you can find... uh, um, on, on YouTube it will be there where I preached about uh, judgment and I preached about what Jesus says about judgment in the Sermon on the Mount and, and how uh, we are called to an incredibly different standard. And um, I would encourage you if you want to explore this further to, to seek that out. But I just want to uh, here say what we mean by best assuming. So loving one another with brotherly affection outdoing one another in showing honor. That means I want to out-honor you, and you've got to out-honor me. And we kind of, if we're going to be competitive in the kingdom, let it be about that, you know, rather than anything else. Let it be about outdoing one another in showing honor. So what does it mean? Well, it means this. If I am the object of God's love, then I would like for you, in any action that I take, to assume that I have the best of intentions. Okay? Typically, we judge others by their actions, what they do, and we judge ourselves by our intentions the reason that we did those things. So I know that if I pursue any course of action, there's been a reasoning in my thinking about why I chose that course of action. Now this can happen in really simple ways. I might walk across the street because I need to get to the shop on the other side of the road. But somebody might be coming towards me who I haven't seen, okay? And they might think, because they saw me cross the road, that I don't want to talk to them. And then they start to process my action through their understanding of that circumstance. And they start to think, ah, Jim didn't want to talk to me, so he crossed the road to the other side. That's not very kind. What have I done wrong? Doesn't he like me? Is there something about me that uh, offends him? Absolutely not. Assume the best of intentions. I crossed the road because I wanted to go to the shop and it was on the other side of the road. That was my purpose. I didn't see the person who was approaching. So that's as simple as it is. Every single time we see somebody perform some action, we have a whole load of filters that we process it through. And we've got to break them down. We've got to shut down those filters because those filters are not helping us. If we are someone who struggles 
for whatever reason, our life experience with rejection, for example, then we start to filter the circumstances around us through the lens of rejection. And that means every action that anyone does, whatever it is, it might be very simply, let's say we were meeting in church, all right, and you're about to talk to someone and they haven't noticed you and they turn away from you because they're about to talk to somebody else. If we've got a, 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 an unhealed wound of rejection, we will filter that action through that lens and we will receive rejection from this individual who never intended to give it to us. They never wanted us to feel rejected. They never wanted to imply that we were not worthy of their attention. They never wanted to imply anything of the sort. They just wanted to talk to this person. That's it. But the filter, if we're not careful, will interpret their action into something it was never intended to be. So that's what it means to be best assuming. Always assume the best of intentions. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And that means if I'm to outdo you in showing honor, I'm to position you as somebody who receives God's love as the object of his love, who wants to release that to the world. And my filter for you is him. My filter for you is Jesus and who he is. Not the filters that have come from my past experience of life. The bad stuff that's happened that I worry about. My filter needs to be who he is. And so in outdoing one another to show you honor, I'm going to filter every single thing you say, every single thing that you do through uh, the filter that knows that your intentions are good, that your intentions are never against me, never to harm me, never to go against me. Because people are precious, we always assume the best of intentions. And fourthly, so just to recap, firstly, what does it mean? People are precious. Firstly, it means that we're family-oriented. Secondly, it means that we're dignity-preserving. Thirdly, it means that we're best-assuming. And finally and fourthly, it means we are love overlaying. Let's read out the scripture that we had right at the beginning. Colossians 3 verses 12 to 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. This passage is going to bring all this together. So just connect the dots as I read it. Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, Meekness and patience, bearing with one another. Do these sound familiar? 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is not self-seeking. Love bears all things. These are, Paul is pulling this from 1 Corinthians 13. 
meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other or outdoing one another in showing honor, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, that means as far as the east is from the west. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions against me from myself. Forgiving as the Lord forgives means that. We don't hold on to it. We don't uh, hold people in unforgiveness. We release them and let them go from any offense or any sense of wanting to right that wrong. That doesn't mean that we don't pursue relationship, that we don't pursue rightness in the relationship. Not at all. But it does mean that we let go of the need to be justified. Sorry, going, uh, taking that further than I needed to. So as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. That's the command on us. We must do it. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That means this stuff. Let it dwell in you and marinate richly to to change. You know, like when you cook something, um, the science of cooking itself, of heat, when you apply heat to meat or to herbs or to, you know, whatever it is you're cooking, it unlocks flavors that cannot be accessed if it's not hot. Heat causes things to mash together. Um, you know, the whatever it is, the small bits, the, um, I can't even remember the language, the neuro, the atoms melds them together and the heat unlocks flavors that only heat can unlock. That's like this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that it starts to unlock those parts that might be harder to reach if we don't do that teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And here, out of worship, this is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So in everything we do it, as to the Lord. And that's got to signify our behavior. And it all roots back to John 15, verse 12. Oh, before I go to John 15, verse 12, I brought a little illustration to bring this to land. This is my barber. Now, those of us who live in this parish, a lot of us have these barbers, okay? A barber or you, maybe a wax jacket. Now, I, got, I put my barber on um, last year on Boxing Day, and I, I don't mean 2020, I mean 2019. I put my barber on, and with my family, who'd come to our home at Christmas, we went up onto um, the South Downs uh, from Storrington, so we went up Chantry Lane up to the Chantry Post, 
and walked up there. It was really foggy. It was so wet. It was freezing cold. And um, uh, yeah, freezing cold, wet, foggy, and it was unbelievably windy. Okay? Now, I got my barber jacket. I did it all the way up with the collar uh, like this. So it was fully uh, covering me up. Okay? And up there, in the gale force winds slapping against us, the kids being sort of pushed around by the wind, and, you know, my parents and Dolly's dad going walking there as well, just not the most pleasant environment, but we felt we needed to have a walk. And there we were, up at the top, and it was freezing cold. Um, and, you know, our hands, I wasn't wearing gloves, so my hands got exposed, and they got bright red and sort of pummeled by the rain that was being forced into my hands and all of that. But you know what? This barber protected my top half. So I was fully dry underneath it and I was warm. And it, you know, the, wind, it, the wax jacket cuts the wind so I don't, get, I don't feel the cold. This was the right tool for that environment. And that's why if you live round here, you're probably going to get something like a barber or a wax jacket or something like that. This protected me from the elements. We put on love. Uh, Colossians 3. We put on love like a barber jacket because when we put love on, it protects us from the elements of the enemy. The fiery darts that he throws our way, fires our way to bring division and disunity, to pull down the people of God, to assassinate our character or any of that stuff. When we put on love, it's like a barber jacket on top of the uh, South Downs when the weather is horrific. And it protects you from the elements. Putting on love like a jacket. Maybe that's an image that you can find helpful. And here we go. I want to bring it home with this. Jesus' words in John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. We put on love like a barber jacket. Love protects us from the fiery darts of the enemy. What does the enemy want to do? He wants to cause havoc in our community. He wants us to be at odds with each other. He doesn't want us to be united. Now, I know I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Being united doesn't mean believing everything the same. That's uniformity. And uniformity in the kingdom of God does not work. Because we are not uniform. We are not all the same. And we don't all believe the same things. On the fundamentals, that's probably true. That we are perhaps uniform. We believe Jesus is the Son of God. That he died, that he rose again, and that he ascended to the right hand of God. And we believe that the Holy Spirit has come. And, you know, there are some things like that. But around all sorts of other stuff, we will believe a whole host of different things. And unity is living with those different beliefs. Unity is my way of honoring who you are, your journey with God, and where that's led you to in your thinking. Okay? Outdoing one another in showing honor causes us to embrace unity. 
Because if I'm honoring your beliefs, I'll respect them, even if I don't agree with them. And that is unity. When love is our foundation, that coat which we put on, the enemy's scheme which seek to divide and destroy cannot land on us. And that's why we are love overlaying. People are precious. And that means that we seek to be a family-oriented, dignity-preserving, best-assuming, and love-overlaying culture and community. That's the core value. And if we embrace that fully, whatever God sends in this space can last into eternity. Because we will be living in such a way that we are respecting and honoring one another, forgiving one another, so that whatever things get thrown up, wherever our weaknesses emerge, um, and wherever we struggle with something, we're in an environment where that is safe, and we love, love each other through into the stronger place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that God, you, so loved the world that we are the objects of your affection, the objects of your love. And so I pray right now in our homes, you would come to us and reveal yourself as the one who pours out his love upon us. That we would know what it means and feels like to be the object of your love and your affection. So that that truth will go deep in our hearts and enable us to be the people that you've called us to be in outdoing one another, in showing honor, in loving one another as Christ has loved us, laying down his life for us. And so, Lord, would you build the culture and the value that people are precious in our environment. May that truth become reality around us in greater and greater depth. And would you show us and put your finger on those ways in which we are not living by that standard so that we ourselves can see the problems that we have so that we are then in a position to come to you and maybe to one another with those things, seeking help, knowing that we'll find it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to stay on for ministry, um, you're welcome to do that. The, the link to that is in the YouTube description, so if you want to drop down to that, maybe you're already on a Zoom call 
uh, listening to this service today. If that's the case, stay on and you can uh, go into the ministry session. Um, if you're a member of the church family, you will have been emailed the link as well. So it will be on the church online email that goes out. Um, but thanks so much for being with us today. I'm just going to close now with a blessing. And so may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit keep your hearts and minds in the love and the joy of Jesus. Amen.